Welcome to the IA Critics Movie Review Podcast. I am professional film critic Sean Patrick. With me is Jeff Lasseter. Hi. And in spirit, uh, Bob Zarrell. Yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, we love He's you, Bob. Somewhere warm. Uh, I know you're struggling somewhere, you know, with all the stress and the... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find us on all the social medias, uh, but uh, we keep up with the Facebook page pretty well, uh, so you can uh, find more there. Jeff, uh, your art. JeffLaster.com is my website. Uh, there you can go to my Etsy, my Tee Public. I suggest my Etsy because I just added some really cool new prints and uh, just ordered some new stickers. Very cool. Uh, of course, your Black Christmas collection is there. Yes, I just put uh, two new, very, very limited Black Christmas uh, posters up um, that I did for a show last weekend that we'll talk about later. Yes, uh, the, we'll get to that in our classic segment. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to talk about Nicolas Cage and the movie called... Well, first of all, I should tell you that uh, I'm I'm on geeks.media, horror.media. Uh, you can find my stuff there. I've just published my review of Wonka, which we'll be talking about next week but you can find my written review already up uh at uh, geeks.media but uh we're going to talk about nicholas cage this week and nicholas cage uh, first of all he talked about this week uh, jeff dropping out of movies and moving to television uh he saw breaking bad for the first time apparently and <laughs> this has inspired him to say you know what i'm i'm getting ready to be done with movies i'm ready to move to tv well, I think he should redo Breaking Bad shot for shot, just like Dustin's <laughs> in Psycho. <laughs> would, I would hope there's something more, <laughs> some more of an idea <laughs> than that. But I, uh, it'll be interesting uh, to see. I mean, he's not, he doesn't watch TV. Uh, he just started apparently watching TV according to his own, according to his own admission, and uh, that was the first thing that he saw. If you were Nicolas Cage, though, would you watch TV? It's like all he he only works. He just he's constantly working. He's constantly working, and he's constantly Nicolas Cage, and <laughs> that's got to be entertaining enough on a daily basis. True. <laughs> of course, his new movie is called Dream Scenario, in which he stars as a man who, uh, as a college professor, he's just a, a schlubby normal dude who just starts showing up in people's dreams. And you assume that that's going to be the point of this, trying to figure out why this one guy who seemingly has no appeal whatsoever, just continuously shows up in people's dreams, uh, strangers, acquaintances, friends, uh, and his own daughter who has the first dream about him that we see in which she floats away into the air, a terrifying dream that she's having. And all the while her dad just stands there, watching her float away and doing nothing about it. And when she recounts this dream to him the next day, he, he takes offense to it because of her portrayal of him in the dream, having done nothing but just stand there and watch as she was carried away. And this begins a theme with this character of him uh, taking finding things to be offended by, finding things that he can interpret as a slight against him as a person. Uh, he does this here. He'll do it in the following scene where he's uh, arranged a lunch so he can accuse a colleague of stealing an idea from him that he had decades ago that this person is also an expert in, that this person is prepared to publish in. He could have published on and never did. It was not his, this idea. It's an idea that they both had in college. He never did anything with it, so she's going to go ahead and do something with it, and he takes offense to that. Uh, and again, this is just a theme, a rolling theme of this guy not being able to read other people. He doesn't read the room very well. He's constantly uncomfortable to the point of making you cringe while you're watching him interact with other people and uh, just turn everything into this minor slight against him. And he becomes this person who you just you want to get away from. He was making my skin crawl throughout this entire movie. And while the, the idea you would think is about uh, this, figuring out why this guy is showing up in people's dreams, it's actually not about that. It's actually about viral celebrity, uh, how this one guy you know, ends up becoming a viral celebrity and tries to take advantage of being a celebrity and then finds the backlash to being a viral celebrity when he starts doing things in people's dreams that are, not cool, <laughs> even though he's not the one doing them, technically. Uh, he's still doing them in people's dreams, and so he ends up getting canceled and trying to find his way out of 
being canceled only creates more of these deeply painful, hard-to-watch scenes, uh, such as the scene where he tries to do a video apology, and it feels like trying to watch like <laughs> one of those YouTuber apologies <laughs> where they, they can't admit that they did anything wrong. They're the victim, and it's your fault. And it, it's so hard to watch, Jeff. <laughs> You know, I'm really glad that you explained it the way you explained it because I hated this movie when I watched it just now. And I I recognize that it was a good movie, but it, it it's him. It's his character. It's that that guy who is the star. He has to be the star of it, of everybody's show, not just his own. And with no effort of his own put into that. No. It just no, has to he be. Just, his head canon is that he's the star, and why isn't everybody seeing how great I am based on what I said? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I just, he just, oh, he's just awful. Awful. To the point where I like, I wanted to escape from this character. I think the movie is incredibly effective. I think the, the production design is great. I think Cage's performance is excellent, but. I don't think I can recommend this to people because my visceral reaction was I was exhausted after this movie. My muscles tensed throughout the entire film. I was physically cringing away from the screen as I watched it because he turns everyday situations into the most uncomfortable thing they can possibly be with his complete lack of self-awareness. And that's what's driving him. Like, he is a guy who absolutely deserves to be canceled, and he doesn't realize it. And when you take that out into the world and you look around at people who are who end up being canceled and deserving it, they all, like, like a Kevin Spacey, oddly enough, who <laughs> we kind of <laughs> used Cage to paint over uh, Spacey in the past on this show, um, Spacey's a guy who does he feels like he's done nothing wrong and he's so hard to watch when you see him because he's completely lacking in the awareness of why people don't want to look at him. Uh and and that's this character in a nutshell. He doesn't understand why nobody wants to be around him. Yeah, he's just he's gross and I, you know, like you feel I felt bad a little bit because he did none nothing that he did mm-hmm. brought this on. I and he mean, didn't nothing, ask to be in people's dreams. Yeah. No. Yeah. He didn't consciously do any of the stuff that he's being canceled for. Um, it was all just perceived slights, which in a lot of cases that I understand, you know, that that cancel culture that can be a big part of it. However, once you start getting into the character and you realize that he's just not a good guy and that he's just his overblown sense of importance and the fact that he's a professor, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that is a little on the nose (laughs) because a lot of the guys in academia are like that. You know, I'm a tenured professor. And he, he he said that like three times. I'm a tenured professor. Yeah, we get it. We know you're tenured. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't get, quote unquote canceled even though he technically didn't do anything but then once you, once you get about halfway into the movie and I'm going to be really honest with you there were a couple of times I just closed my eyes because I couldn't look at it anymore and I started mm-hmm. to drift off a little bit yeah um and that was no fault of the mo- like the actual narrative I was still listening to it I just could not look physically <laughs> at him anymore cuz he's so cringe He's gross. He's just disgusting. Um, And not like he's normal, like, but the way he plays it is so gross. Um, And I just, I was just like, this guy, he just kind of deserves this. Yeah, absolutely. Just for being an asshole. He does. He absolutely does deserve this in the end. Uh, and it, because he he just doesn't understand the effect that he has on people with the way he acts towards people. The way there's this whole sequence where he he goes to try and take further advantage of the, his dream celebrity, and he's meeting these he's having this meeting with uh, Michael Sarah and other people about uh, his, how he's going to become a viral celebrity and take advantage of it and try and get his book written or whatever. 
And he has this encounter with this woman who says that they've been having sex in her dream. And I mean, his wife, played by Julian Nicholson, has been so kind to him up at this point, trying to get him to recognize how strange this is, trying to push him away from, you know, the things that would further this because she can sense the danger of it that he can't. And and you just see him getting into this situation where he's going to indulge this girl and essentially perhaps end up cheating on his wife. And I don't know why anyone would want to sleep with this man because he's just the most repulsive human being in the world. <laughs> but that whole sequence is so hard to watch. And it's all based off of him pushing the situation further and further than it needs to be. It's really terrible. The movie's great. Yeah, I, <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah, I it's, the, it's. I think the movie's great because the movie is is giving you these feelings. It's intentional. You, it intends yeah. for you to feel this level of discomfort and and disdain for this character. I feel strongly that everything the cage is doing and everything that this director is drawing out of him, uh, uh, Borgley is the director. Uh, I think this is intended, and I think that's impressive that they can transmit this feeling off the screen. But it's not a feeling I can recommend to anybody. <laughs> no, no. If you want to feel deeply uncomfortable and you don't want to go to a Trump rally, watch this movie. Oh, yeah. I'm just I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I will. I want to talk a little bit just about my perception of the ending because it seems as if there's a portion of this that that is not a happy ending, but I I think you could take it the wrong way if you if if you chose to take it the wrong way like they're trying to redeem him in some way i don't think that's the case i think this guy is just trying to once again force the reality that he wants on someone who may or may not want it and he's I manipulating think that's everybody really what around happens him. at the end see what he's he's manipulating everyone around him yeah you know and he's manipulating his wife he's manipulating you know, trying to manipulate people's dreams again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, it, honestly, the, the movie went way darker than I expected it to. Mm. You know, I expected it to be like you said, like, why is this happening? Let's see if we can get to the bottom of it, you know, and him going, I would have loved, quite honestly, to see him as a sympathetic character going down the rabbit hole, trying to find out why, why him. Mm-hmm. You know, instead there's, there's of a whole other movie that you can make from that. I do like the direction this director went in terms of how effective it is and in, in what he's trying to communicate. I, I think he he made an interesting choice that was incredibly perhaps too effective. Yeah, yeah. I just I was very surprised that it went the way it went. Um and very uncomfortable for a good <laughs> two thirds of the movie. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I felt. I felt it from the first moment to the last myself. I was just desperately uncomfortable watching this movie. Uh, so I like this movie. I don't recommend it. It's a weird way to put it, but I, I do. I do think this is an effective movie. I just don't recommend it. Whereas you, you genuinely don't like it, right? I didn't. I know. I, I, I did not like it. After I got out of it, I hated it. Mm -hmm. But then, when once we started talking about it, I understood, you know, where the director was coming from, where the writer was coming from, where Ari Aster, the producer, was coming from. Mm -hmm. You know, it it all like I thought it was I didn't like the movie, but it's just that I just hated him. In it. <laughs> Such a he's just so gross in it. Yeah. So. Yeah, like you. I, I can't recommend it, but I thought it was a really well done movie. Well said. Uh, a far better movie, in my opinion, is Godzilla Minus One. And this <sighs> one is uh, showing on the IMAX right now, and it's taking us back to the, the classic way in, to, in which uh, Godzilla is is uh, presented uh, through through the lens of the Japanese Isles and, and uh, the and the Japanese main characters, uh, a former kamikaze pilot uh, who chooses not to be a kamikaze pilot uh, has to go back to Japan, sort of ashamed of himself that he was unwilling to give his life for his country. Uh, he ends up 
seemingly inheriting a woman and a baby who become his sort of family and and begins to see a redemption for himself and that's the key to this movie is that is is that this movie gives us these wonderful human characters to get involved in and care about give this, it gives them these deep complexities and motivations for what they do and then sets them about in a plot where they happen to fight Godzilla and they do that by using just smarts and strategy and coming up with clever ideas that you can clearly understand and and are excited to see carried out and uh the way they carry those out here are absolutely brilliant they really i think they really nailed this this is the best godzilla movie i think i've ever seen oh definitely it finally got the human story right i mean that's you know they always they've like even gareth edwards i'm gonna we're gonna we're going to get the Godzilla in there, but we're going to get the human story. And it just, this was the best Godzilla movie to date, in my opinion. Uh, even the, like, know, even on a small budget, the Godzilla in this movie is great. He looks fantastic. Yeah. $15 million to make this movie. And it looks like it's a hundred million dollars. It's way better than any of the modern Godzilla movies. I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of people who like those movies. I'm not among those who like that those movies. I find them to be mostly empty uh, for me. I, I don't find those characters appealing, and I certainly don't think that their version of Godzilla is particularly appealing. But uh, this, I, they created a tremendous monster. They gave him a reason to be a giant menace. You know, they, they go back to the original origin story from the A-bomb tests and whatnot. Uh, they don't linger on that, though, because they're busy establishing these human characters with these uh, you know, wide-ranging characteristics and motivations, especially this main character who's going through so many things uh, via Godzilla, via, you know, just his the end of World War World War II and... I just found him to be so wonderfully sympathetic. I felt for him the entire way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody in the, in the human cast is likable, even, you know, like likable might not be the wrong, might, might be the wrong word, but it's, they're relatable. Mm. Um, and he plays it. You know, a little over the top, but his emotions are so high. Like, mm -hmm. not me getting choked up at a fucking Godzilla movie. Okay? <laughs> right. Um, you know, and they did uh, a little spoiler. So if you want to jump ahead a little bit. Um, at the end, you know, when they, this this particular plane did not come with a an ejection seat. And I thought when he said the bomb safety, you got to pull the bomb safety. Mm-hmm to make it to arm it. I thought he had put an ejection seat in there to, uh, you know, not telling him. Right. That, you know, he knew he wanted to die, but he knew deep down he wanted to live. So he was going to let him live. I thought that it was, you know, kind of uh, just a red herring, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, just the way it's, everybody plays it just so perfectly. Yeah, and Godzilla and I, looks great. Godzilla is a threat. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I think in most Godzilla movies, you're, you know, you're kind of rooting for Godzilla. It's like you know, Jason or Freddy, but, but you, you know, he's a little more sympathetic. This one, he's actually kind of just a menace and scary, and he doesn't. He's not trying to, you know, he's gonna fuck up shit. Yeah, he's a genuine um, I, monster this time, and and that's uh, that was you know that goes back to that problem of horror movies in the early two thousands, especially where they just surround you know famous killers with just these obnoxious people that you just kind of you know, make you root for you know uh, for Freddy or Jason or Michael Myers to take their head off because like they're just so obnoxious. Why would I give a damn about them? And that totally misses the point of why we enjoy horror or monster movies it's the human element it's wanting humanity to survive to have people you relate to put you in that put you in the situation where you can uh feel like what would you do how would you survive how would you react and this movie puts you in the in the pilot seat it puts you on the boats it puts you in the situation where you know you're rooting for everybody around you to overcome 
Godzilla. And at the same time, there's also this kind of mini homage going on to like classic Hollywood, where you've got this story about Noriko, uh, the woman who's found this baby and created this sort of family with him. She ends up disappearing for a little bit. You assume she's dead. And there's this wonderful like Hollywood ending thing coming up that is just fucking great. <laughs> it's just you're just watching this movie going, I just want everybody <laughs> to survive this. And it's just wonderful how this plays out. Yeah, there was a, a a point where I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe they killed that person. Mm. And then I was then, you know, then there was that brief, brief scene. And I was like, oh, no, they're going to get. Oh, yeah. Loved it. I loved it. Yeah. I loved every bit of it. And you know what else this movie doesn't have, Jeff, is that stock character who's who's always in the way, who's telling them that this can't be done this way, or you can't, yeah. uh, you can't do this. You, the government won't let you. None of that. They, they push, they get rid of that character. That character doesn't exist. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's on the same side. Once they're united against Godzilla, they come up with, they just spend their time. Instead of arguing, they come up with a really good plan. And that's the key to beating Godzilla ends up being a really good plan. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's funny is like, if you watch Scooby-Doo, Mm-hmm. there's a formula. If they say what the plan is, it's going to fail. <laughs> Every time, if you just go back and watch Scooby-Doo, if they say, okay, you guys, <laughs> I've got a plan and they cut to commercial. Yeah. The plan succeeds. If they say, okay, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to quarter this guy and we're going to sneak around the back and do this and this and this. And then we're going to pull his mask off. It's going to be old man, Logan. It always fails. <laughs> the fact that they, you know, they gave you the entire plan here, all three parts of it, you expect to fail because of the, because they do that. And one of those parts doesn't fail. So <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. That's wonderful. This movie's fantastic. I'm so glad it did well this weekend too. It uh, seemed to make, uh, make money, <laughs> uh, even, even in the domestic box, box office. Uh, with a, with no compromise, it's fully it's fully uh, uh, subtitled, uh, so there's no compromises going on. They're giving you the full Godzilla experience, and it's good to see audiences uh, willing to go there. Uh, so many times we've heard in the past that audiences won't sit down for a subtitled film, and I'm glad to see that's not true with this. Everybody that I have talked to loved this movie, so. Highly, highly, highly recommend. All right, uh, moving on, we're getting into our holiday portion of the show, Jeff, with a uh, a movie you recommended this week called It's a Wonderful Knife. And uh, this is a film that uh, centers on the story of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, but as a horror film of sorts. Uh, (laughs) The uh, story goes here that uh, there's a town called Angel Falls where there's a serial killer who's setting about uh, killing people in town specifically to get their hands on a particular piece of property. We found out early on that this is a character named Henry Waters, played by Justin Long, with all of the appropriate comic smarm <laughs> needed for this role. The full-on tan, the capped teeth. It's Justin Long is fucking great. Um, <laughs> we end up finding out that he is the killer, and he ends up being killed very early on by our main character, who uh, takes him out and uh, ends up, you know, saving the town essentially. But then when she wakes up for Christmas, things are a little bit odd. Her parents are a little bit weird. And it's as if this, uh, some sort of new kind of, uh, terror has been unleashed, but it's not quite sure what it is. So, uh, she ends up going to appear and wishing that she'd never been born because, you know, she's plagued by the memories of these murders and her family doesn't seem to want to deal with it. And she gets her wish. She ends up uh, back in Angel Falls at a time when she'd never been born. And this angel killer has gone out of control for the past year because she wasn't there to stop him a year ago. Uh, she's killed. Uh, the, the killer's killed her brother, killed several other people that she knows or cares about. And uh, now she's got to once again set herself up to try and kill this thing and try and get her life back. The thing about this that I really liked, Jeff, was that the the it doesn't take that premise lightly it doesn't take the premise of it's a wonderful life and try to uh and try to just live off of the 
the ick of just trying to turn something people love into something horrible. This takes that premise very seriously and what would happen if this were a slasher movie scenario. And I appreciated the elements where they're kind of honoring it's a Wonderful Life. It's not my favorite movie. It's a Wonderful Life, but I appreciate that they're not tr- that this isn't just them trying to exploit. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. They're using that premise to tell a different kind of story, and it helps. They've got wonderful characters, and I don't know if you ever do this, Jeff, but I sometimes when I'm watching a movie and there's a, a side character, I, I can fall in love very easily, and just my entire joy of the movie is based on whether or not that side character is going to to live and thrive and be okay. And I adopted Bernie the moment I saw her. And as she develops into a main character, when she is chosen essentially to be a main character, I was like, yes, Bernie. <laughs> I was, and then I, I came up with a rule about halfway through, like if something happens to Bernie, I turn off the movie. The movie's over for me if there's no Bernie. And then it just gets better and better with that character throughout to the point where I just love this movie. I wanted to love it. Oh, I liked it, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I wasn't super, super engaged. Like I thought I was going to be, mm-hmm. um, there was, I didn't, I didn't hate anything about it. I, I mean, at all. I, you know, just, I liked it. I didn't, fall in love with it Mm. um and i love christmas slasher movies uh i thought it was you know i thought the angel it took me a minute to figure out that that's the it was an angel um (laughs) you know i thought that was that was a really interesting looking uh killer um i when it when she killed him and unmasked is justin long i was a little surprised because I thought it was a little just too on the nose and too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it would be somebody else. Um, and, you know, eventually it is, but I, I kind of checked out for a little bit mm-hmm. while I was watching it. I did appreciate that everybody in the movie is just gayer than Christmas. Um <laughs> Gay, but uh, gay in a way that like there's no commentary about it. There's no there's no big no, point to be made. No. Just these are people. That's what who I liked about it. Gay in this situation. Yes, that's what I liked about it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm I if if a character doesn't need to be gay and they're made gay for some political reason, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked this because it was just oh yeah you know, um, it's my aunt and she's gay and this is her wife and. Uh, you know, I just the captain of the football team, her brother, the star quarterback is gay and he's just shown just being, you know, big man on campus who happens to like picking up dudes at parties. Like it's, it's just normal. It's a normal part of this. And that's the thing that is like modern society as, as the new generations are creating it, it's more fluid idea of sexuality. It's really more people like us and certainly our parents who created these rigid, gender and sexuality roles that everybody feels they have to, you know, box themselves into. And these new generations, they don't feel like that. They don't feel like doing that. They're going to go with the moment and what they're attracted to. And that's, you know, they're going to make up their minds as they go. And that's really the way it should be. And this movie kind of portrays that. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it wasn't like, it wasn't progressive for the sake of being progressive, at all i think it's just reflective of society yeah yeah which i i thought was refreshing um like i said it wasn't this is i it's one i'll probably watch occasionally during the christmas season because i I love me a christmas slasher um (laughs) it's not i didn't i didn't I, i i was just okay with it i didn't love it i didn't hate it but i i thought it was solid I don't mean to like piss on your uh, (laughs) poinsettia, but you know, just like, I just, I had a great time with this, especially because I just, I fell in love with Bernie. I wanted to, I wanted Bernie to have the world. And, uh, and I love that the, you know, she's this very minor character early on. And I thought they're going to just toss her aside eventually. And uh, there are a couple of occasions where it appeared like she was just going to get, get shunted to a side character. And, then she gets drawn further and further into this. And there's this point where 
uh, <laughs> where uh, uh, the main character looks at her and goes, will you be my Clarence? And I damn near choked up. I was like, I was so excited for for Bernie to get this opportunity to be, you know, this main character. But I did not know where that relationship was heading uh, by the end, which really surprised and delighted me. Yeah, I I really did love Bernie. I thought that, you know, you just think, oh, you're just weirdo. And no, you actually have depth and become a love interest you know it's like oh whoa oh okay so yeah i recommend it i th- you know i think people should watch it i think it especially if you love horror movies so it's way better than i ever thought it would be i thought this was just going to be another opportunity to exploit a, a famous title or a famous premise and and use that famous premise to uh you know just to do slasher movie shit uh, exploitation shit and you know kind of like what the Grinch movies have done there's horror Grinch movies are just they're nothing there's nothing to them they're just using that Grinch character to do horror movie stuff and adding nothing to it this seems to care about the idea the premise of it's a wonderful life and using that in a different way but honoring it nonetheless and honoring really film history in so many ways yeah you know, you could take a premise like it's a it's a wonderful life and apply that to just about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, a sitcom or a you know Saint Elsewhere kind of show. God, I'm getting right. myself. Um, <laughs> you, you, but to put it in a horror movie, I think that's a really interesting idea, and it's done really well. Um, you know what it reminded me of? Now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's kind of like what. Happy Death Day did with the uh, time travel essentially, which is take take a yeah. essentially like a time travel or you know Groundhog Day premise and make that into a horror movie, but but do it in a way that that isn't just a uh, isn't just robbing the premise, but actually building upon it in a way. And this is this is building upon the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive movie. I was really surprised at how how much fun this is and how, and how excited I was watching it. Yeah, and you didn't have to watch curtains. <laughs> what is curtains, Jeff? Okay, so let me preface this by saying um, we're about to talk about Black Christmas again because it's the best movie ever made. Um, last weekend, I got to go to Chicago. Uh, I sold some of my artwork at Facets Theater in Chicago, which is a great little indie uh, theater. And they showed Black Christmas and Curtains with the one of the stars of both of those movies, Lynn Griffin, who is a goddamn delight. <laughs> and I am trying to work out a way to get her on the show. Uh, that being said, Curtains was the second one. And I hadn't seen Curtains in a while. Um. You ask, what is Curtains? Curtains is a mess. That's what Curtains <laughs> is. Okay. Uh, curtains is probably best remembered for the scene where Leslie Donaldson is skating, ice skating in the morning, and she's listening to music while she skates, and then all of a sudden, the music stops, and she finds this doll who, in the movies, lore pretends death. And she (laughs) she finds the doll and then somebody in a hag mask, or I guess it's a banshee mask, according to the person who designed it, um, is chasing her over the ice and into the woods in the snow with a scythe. Uh, You may remember that from watching it on HBO or Cinemax or late night TV throughout since the 80s. It's been kind of in rotation, especially in the winter months. Um, It is the story of a director has brought a bunch of uh, ingenues to a a deserted mansion in the snow because he's looking for someone to play the character Audra, who was introduced by Samantha Egger's character, who has checked herself into an asylum at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie with his, at his behest to learn what it's like to be in an asylum. Uh, 
he leaves her there and does this casting thing and she escapes and you're not sure is she the person who's killing off all these women or is it him or is it one of the other women and the thing about it is that nobody involved in the production actually really knows either Uh, there were several different endings shot Um, in the end you find out that Lynn Griffin's character who has been a comedian and she's been doing stand-up and she wants to be a serious actress. You find out that either she's the killer and knocked everybody off and is put in an institution or she's just been in an institution the whole time. And all of this happened in her head. Hmm. It's it's stylistically kind of dumb. Um, it's got that the great death scene on the ice is the probably the best redeeming factor about it. Yeah. Uh, the acting is some of it is okay, some of it is subpar. Uh, there's some people that you'll recognize, like John Vernon plays Jonathan Stryker, the director. Um, you, you know, Samantha Egar. Uh, if you're a horror fan or you like Strange Brew, you'll recognize Lynn Griffin. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she replaced Diana Rigg in the Avengers TV series. Mm-hmm. But it's just a mess. It's just like <laughs> it's just it, it's like four different movies, and they kind of just cut it together. Yeah, and it doesn't really make any sense. The um, there's a still that they show in the Blu-ray on the you know the the real I think it's called the Real Nightmare: The Making of Curtains. Okay. Um, and it's Lynn Griffin doing her stand-up, and she's got all the corpses behind her, like a la "Happy Birthday to Me." And I, th- I was like, that would have been such a better ending. Um, it just, just be glad that I told you not to watch it because when I watched it Saturday night, I just kind of was like, "Wow, I should have left and dro- driven back to Iowa when this movie started." <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, uh, that leads us, though, to a movie that uh, is a Christmas tradition on the show now. Uh, Every year at Christmas, we talk about Black Christmas, not just because of Jeff, but because of Jeff. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This was the reason I first did the show. The very first time I ever did the show was to talk about my favorite movie of all time, Black Christmas. And this is at least the third time we've featured this movie on the show because we like talking about it. Because it's so good. (laughs) But uh, this time I took a little different tact. Uh, first of all, tell us about your experiences. You went to Chicago specifically to see this movie on the big screen. I had never seen this movie on the big screen until this year, and I've seen it twice. Well, one and a half times. Okay, I saw it in uh, on September 30th at the Massacre. Entire movie from beginning to end. Um, this past Saturday, I to watch it and the guy next to me who was older he's probably 60 was on his phone the entire time oh i mean for no reason whatsoever so i ended up dipping out after about 40 minutes and i luckily i did because i got to sit and talk to lynn griffin and her husband sean sullivan who i knew from the movie who's that girl with madonna yeah. Um, he also did a movie called Ski Patrol with our mutual friend, Leslie <laughs> Jordan, rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. um, among other, you know, he's done lots of other stuff. Uh, but I had the pleasure of sitting down, getting to know Lynn Griffin, um, who bought some of my artwork that you can get on my Etsy shop right now. Um, and we are talking about getting her on the show. She just, she's so enthusiastic and, I knew this 22 years ago when they released Black Christmas on DVD for the first time. And she and Art Hindle did a Black Christmas Revisited where they hosted it. And she is just so effervescent about her work and loves that Black Christmas is what it has become, which is almost more than a cult classic at this point. It's really recognized as one of um, the kind of 
seminal slasher movies. Uh, yes, Ooh. Peeping Tom was the first of the, you know, where you see the killer point of view and that a lot of the tropes are taken from there. But what Bob Clark did with Black Christmas was elevate it, elevate the stock and slash genre or and create it in a way. Um, it, he's got an amazing cast. Everybody in this movie is just so good that any little bits that might not work on paper, work with this cast. Um, you know, even even a character like Claire, played by Lynn Griffin, who is not, and this is not a spoiler because she's right on the poster, she's killed in the first five minutes of the movie and sits mm -hmm. up in the attic as a corpse with a plastic bag over her head. It's literally on the poster, so I'm not giving anything away. She has an actual rich backstory that you find out over the course of the movie because her father's there and, you know, everybody has like Barb, you wrote about uh, Margot Kidder's character and you get the, you get her backstory in the very first five minutes of the story. And it's not just where she sets down and says, well, my mother is a gold plated whore. No, this is all, all the cues are taken from the initial phone call that comes to the house. Mm -hmm. This is how you learn about the killer and motivations, etc., are through these obscene phone calls that the girls get. Um, I, I sat to, at Sunday night after I got back and went over to my sister's to have dinner. I showed my 15 year time. And so, you know, like it took me a while to kind of, the first few times I watched it to really get it, but she was really paying attention because I've turned, turned her into quite a horror fan. And she mm -hmm. like, she got it. She got it. Oh, Barb is. So why is her mom telling her she, you know, isn't coming home for Christmas? Um, why isn't Jess going home for Christmas? Is it because she's from another country? Yeah. You know, it's like, excellent. Um, it's just the way he sets up the characters you care about them. You care if they, when they die. Uh, Mrs. Mack is one of the best comedic characters in a horror movie ever put on film. <coughs> I mean, she's just, Marion Waldman just eats it. <laughs> Everything. Um, you know, I, I watching this with a, in a theater full of people twice in one year, you really pick up on stuff. Like I take it very seriously. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, but there are laugh lines that I didn't even know were laugh lines hmm. because seeing it with a group of people and everybody's laughing or, you know, cheering, etc. It's just, it's something else. If, if you, if you get to see it in a theater, absolutely do. The thing that, that, that struck me watching it this time is the, and that Bob Clark doesn't get enough credit for is that this is incredibly skillful. Like in terms of the, of, in terms of the way he uses the camera, what he doesn't get any credit for is his use of visual storytelling. He is doing more with, with visuals in the first five minutes of this movie than most directors do in their entire fucking film. Exactly. Uh, he is shifting from the perspective of the killer to the to the regular static, uh, you know, the the, the familiar uh, observant point of view to the first person point of view, incredibly skillfully to the point where it it seems very simple, and it is in terms of storytelling, in terms of logic, it is quite simple what he's doing. But it's something that if you're not looking for it, if you're not a student of this thing, you're not supposed to notice it. It's when it's this good, and that's the key: is that this is this good. You wouldn't take note of how good it is. The way that he is delineating, uh, just a little bit of a shake in the camera, just a little bit of the camera becomes a little bit shifty when it's in that first-person perspective, and it moves a little bit differently. Whereas when he's doing a pan, uh, you know, just a smooth pan up the stairs to look to go to where the killer is, that's a directorial move that is observational. But then he'll jump into the perspective of the killer and it becomes shaky a little bit. 
Uh, you know, that's why he opens specifically on that static shot and the entirety of the credits play out over the static shot of the sorority house. That is a static shot that is very familiar. It sets the stage. It tells you what you're what you're looking at and what where you're, where the where the scene is going to be set. But that static shot also prepares you for when the camera starts to become shaky in that first person perspective. And you have to really put as a director a lot of thought and a lot of care into making sure that you're delineating between when you're in first person perspective and when you're in observa observational perspective. And that is a skill that not every director has. You very much so, yeah. And Bob Clark, he's a well-known director. You know, I mean, baby geniuses. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> he he made Porky's and he made A Christmas Story, which mm -hmm. everybody has seen that multiple times. So, you know, he's he's doesn't get enough credit as a director, I think. Mm -hmm. Um the scene in Black Christmas where they are cutting from the choir of children to Margot Kidder getting stabbed to death with a glass unicorn is my number one directed scene in all of horror. Mm -hmm. It's just so masterful. And like you said, they're cutting between... They're, you're basically... It's two sides of the same coin. You've got Olivia Hussey's Jess and the killer and their point of view. Her point of view is, oh, you know, this is the most wonderful bit of respite from all the shit that's been going on over the last 24 hours. I get to watch these kids sing and you mm -hmm. know, they're singing a beautiful song and they're doing very well. And his perspective is I'm going to kill this bitch because she's my sister, mm. but she's not my, you know, She's an avatar for my sister. So right. The the yeah the, the just the the visual work here. I mean the the sound design too. I've got to shout out the sound design. The sound design is spectacular. Early on, again, uh, when he first introduces the killer, the way he allows the the noise of the party that's going on inside the sorority house, and uh, then introducing his killer stalking up to the house outside. He has the music fall away. He has this light bass sound come in that just then slowly disappears, giving way to just that heavy breath and the wind that sounds, it sounds cold. I don't know what cold sounds like, but it sounds like the wind in this movie. That's what cold sounds like to me. Uh, and that is so well done. And then he continues that as he's moving uh, this, this killer around to the side of the house and he starts to climb the trellis and he's climbing in the window. He's using his sound design again to just, he's, he's put away all of the, 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 the conversations that's all buried very deep in the sound design. And what you're hearing is the breath, the wind, the squeak of the floor. And you're in that moment and <laughs> you're in that moment so much that even though you're in the perspective of the killer, you still don't want that noise to happen that's going to you know alarm someone to his presence it's not so much that you're rooting for him you're not but you're forced into the perspective of the killer and that's another thing that's happening here there's a sort of meta layer going on where he's using this first person perspective to force you to confront the idea that you're watching and enjoying people being murdered it is a commentary on horror cinema in itself to place the audience so much in that perspective to where we have to actually watch people be killed from our own perspective as if we're the ones doing it and that forced perspective is it's challenging to the audience and 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 really is uh, quite uh, it's quite a challenge to to do as a filmmaker because you're essentially criticizing horror itself you're yeah you're you're complicit because it's from everything is from his point of mm -hmm. view um, and because you like the characters so much, because, you know, Barb is ultimately tragic because she's, you know, she's a, got a drinking problem and mm -hmm. she thinks everybody hates her. <laughs> Excuse me. And, she, you know, for her, her line, I should be so lucky to have a stranger come into my room. And then he does and he kills her mm. and you're, there you're doing it with him so yeah 
Yeah, that's fucking brilliant. This is the first time I've really seen uh, more of this movie from your perspective and in terms of why you like it. And I'm, I'm seeing it from a perspective that makes me like it more, I guess. Well, I think everybody should like it and love it and watch it <laughs> annually on Christmas Eve. Well, we're going to be talking about it every year at Christmas, so the, just get used to it, folks. Next year, I'll write a 1,400-word essay about the ending. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, next year, I'll have uh, met the rest of the surviving cast. I I have met Margot Kidder. Mm -hmm. uh, she was ill when I met her, so it was not yeah. great. It wasn't, you know... Wasn't mm -hmm. everything I hoped it be it would be. I had about <laughs> a forty minute conversation with John Saxon about Black Christmas. Oh, uh, when everybody else was at uh, Days of the Dead to meet Robert England and have a Nightmare on Elm Street mm -hmm. reunion, I saw John Saxon and just went over to him and I was like, "I gotta tell you how much I love Black Christmas." Oh, oh, oh! And he talked. I mean, he gave me some really interesting perspectives on the movie um, and stories that are now, you know, well known about him replacing Edmund O'Brien at the last minute. Um, you know, I feel like I knew that before everybody else did <laughs> because John Saxon told me um, he was just, a, he was a really, really nice man as well. Uh, and then Lynn Griffin, I, I just can't, so much fun. Uh, if you go to my Instagram, jefflaster.com or jefflasterfineart or pop cult, sorry, uh, links are at jefflaster.com. Um, the, the pictures that we took just don't even do it justice. It was just so mm. much fun. She's so wonderful. Uh, Sean's Sean is great too. He's just, it was just a really, really nice time. So thank you facets for hosting it. Yeah, next year what, what we're going to do for this is we're going to take the stories that you're gathering from the cast and uh, turn that into one of our commentary tracks. I would love that, yeah. That is the plan. So get ready. Christmas 2024, we'll release our uh, Black Christmas commentary track. Yeah, exactly. As a Christmas gift to our viewers or listeners. <laughs> All right, uh, quickly moving on to, again, we both love Black Christmas, and yeah, take a look, take a closer look at it, and especially give some love to Bob Clark's ingenious direction. Uh, 1993, Amy and I, uh, MJ was not available, but Amy and I watched a movie called Josh and Sam. Uh, <laughs> weird story about this one, Jeff, and I'm kind of interested to hear what you think of this little experiment we did. So Josh and Sam is not available per se. Uh, you could buy it for like 15 bucks. We weren't going to do that. But Amy checked no. on YouTube and found it, found the whole movie. But what she found was the movie minus the soundtrack, meaning that there was no music whatsoever in the movie, just oh. the movie. And we watched that, and what appears to be this child adventure romp turns into this weird dystopian crime thriller without the music there to tell you what is what you're supposed to be feeling at any moment. Josh and Sam are brothers. Josh convinces his little brother Sam that he's actually uh, a robot mutant and that the CIA are out to get him uh, for whatever reason. Boys will be boys. Uh, they, ended up, they end up running away after their mom, played by Joan Allen, tells them that they're going to be moving from Montana to Florida to live with their dad, Stephen Tobolowsky, while she runs off to Europe for a year with her new husband. Uh, and Josh doesn't want to do this, and he convinces Sam, obviously, that he's a robot, so he'll go along with it, and they end up stealing a car and some credit cards and going on a cross-country trip. They meet Martha Plimpton. She thankfully takes over the driving from these two children, 12 and 8 years old. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a it's a adventure film that you could assume where like you would hear like happy peppy pop tunes you know to under underline what's supposed to be an adventure but without those pop tunes there to tell you or that pop soundtrack that's you know early 90s synth to tell you that you're supposed to find what you're seeing humorous it just plays as dystopian it plays like these are two you know terrified children lost in the wilderness <laughs> it's very it's a very unique experience 
we actually enjoyed watching Josh and Sam without the music more than, I mean, far more than the remains of the day or, or Mrs. Doubtfire, which we both hated. So this was actually a <laughs> pretty, pretty good experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd never. You just you don't realize how how important music is to a movie until you don't have it. <laughs> yeah, that's well. Look at Halloween. Halloween would not be scary if it wasn't for the music. Have you ever heard of uh, of uh, <laughs> was it uh, Garfield without Garfield? It's yes. just panels of of John just talking to himself out loud. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of what this was like. It's kind of like, it's kind of like that where you just, you don't have the laugh lines. You just have the, the kind of horrific existence of two children, you know, running from their parents. I, I find it to be, I find that to be so entertaining. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to send that guy. We're gonna, whoever did this on YouTube, we're sending him a, a big, a big thank you because he made uh, this next week's episode of uh, the ninety three podcast possible and so much better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff. Uh, next week, uh, are you excited for Timothy Chalamet and Wonka? I might be sick next week. <laughs> Jesus Christ! No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Uh, well, let's just put it this way. I'm using my movie credit because I'm not excited about this movie. Okay. I'm not going to spoil my review unless you want to, you can go spoil it for yourself. It's on the Facebook page. Yeah. But, uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think we're going to watch, I think I'm recommending we watch the Gene Wilder, uh, Wonka movie for the classic, if that's all right. That, that would be fine with me. Now, well, let me, this is not a prequel. Never mind. I'm that. wrong. This is two weeks away still. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wrong. Okay. No, uh, this week is the, the Boy and the Heron, which is, uh, I believe, a Miyazaki movie, and a movie called Eileen, starring Anne Hathaway. Those are the two big movies. So I don't have a classic plan for this week. Oh, hmm. Yeah, I, just, uh, I got ahead of myself because I was so excited about Wonka. Oh, now am I am I right in that this is a prequel to the Johnny Depp one? Uh, this I think this is more along the lines of the Gene Wilder one, but I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I thought I'm I heard sure. somebody say that it was a prequel to the Depp. So. I mean, if I, I don't see it. There's nothing in this performance that even remotely resembles the Johnny Depp version, so I don't I don't see where anybody could have got that impression. <laughs> Depp's performance is very, very odd, and Timothy Chalamet's performance is odd, but in a way that makes sense. I don't see any marriage between them whatsoever. Good to know. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> I forgot. We forgot to talk about something. We Because uh, I fucked up the show last week. Uh, we were going to talk. We talked about Saltburn, and we were going to talk about it this week. And I Oh, that's forgot. right. Yeah. Uh, tell people about Saltburn, Jeff. Uh, Saltburn is the story of uh, the name I is escaping me right now. Barry Keegan plays uh, poor kind of down on his, you know, not really anybody, but he gets into Oxford and he kind of imprints on Jacob Elordi's character. And, you know, like they meet, they have a meet cute, but you don't know if he's in love with them or if he's not. Uh, he offers him his bike and that endears him, that endears Jacob Elordi to Barry Keegan and they become friends and he invites him because of the fact that uh, uh, Barry Keegan has kind of manipulated it so that he gets an invite to Saltburn, which is Jacob Elordi's family's uh, estate. And mm -hmm. it's a huge like country estate, think Downton Abbey. And from there, we kind of see the, the relationship between the entire family and this Oliver, who is just kind of a nobody and they think he's a nobody, but they, they also know that, you know, Jacob Elordi likes to take in, uh, strays, strays. Mm -hmm. every summer. And this ends up coming to bite him in the ass. And you get to see how the, you know, Oliver, who is nobody, 
kind of manipulates his way into Saltburn and into the family and beyond. Mm. Very, very good movie. Very good movie. It, it is It is quite good. Uh, Barry Keegan is one of the most interesting and exciting actors uh, working today. Uh, I really can't get enough of the guy. Uh, he's just this strange energy about him and everything that he does. Uh, he's so unpredictable. He's kind of a, he's a live wire. And here, being the main character, he has to dial that back for about two-thirds of the movie. But then when he lets loose and he becomes more of a Barry Keegan character and the plot fully reveals itself, you're just kind of in awe of the radiant energy coming off of this man. Uh, there are numerous scenes in this movie that are just kind of gross or shocking or, or uh, sexy in the most weird and unexpected ways. Um, it's a very horny movie, super horny, but <laughs> horny with a with a desperate purpose to it because every act, every sexual act seems to have a, a deeper purpose or meaning or something that he's intending to do with that. <laughs> uh, it's all building up towards this uh, ending that is uh, not unexpected, but certainly uh, filled with some surprises, I would say. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I never ever thought I'd see somebody fucking dirt, but here we are. <laughs> and I want to, I want to say something I said on last week's show that is lost in the ether. Mm -hmm. uh, Barry Keegan is what I define as ugly hot. <laughs> he, I, I said last week that he's like Julia Roberts, where her face is more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And so is his. Um, he's like Adam Driver is also ugly hot. If you're, you know, like you can get a. <laughs> it, he's got those ears and that nose, and he kind of looks like a cartoon mouse. But when you smash them all together and you put him in like black leather, he's kind of hot. Um, he's ugly hot in that he is. Through you know every every role I've ever seen him in. Um, the Green Knight, he's just got this, and I'm talking about Barry Keegan now, uh, there's a magnetism to him. Mm -hmm. And he's not, he's not pretty. He's definitely looks working class, but there is something so magnetic about him and the way he moves. Um, you see this, like when the movie starts, he's kind of nebbish and, you know, like it's almost like, um, a superhero origin story <laughs> where you know, think um, Jamie Foxx in The Amazing Spider Man 2, where he's kind of this nerdy guy with glasses, and you know, and then something happens, and suddenly you see him kind of sauntering throughout the movie. Mm. Um, after he's exposed, he does this saunter. He's he's at his birthday party that they've decided to still throw for him so that right. it doesn't look weird. And he's sauntering around the party with his little like horns on his head and just the way he moves. It's it, you know, he moves very static at the beginning, and as the movie goes on, he kind of saunters more until the end. He's dancing and you know, using every little part of his body. And I mean, every part of his body <laughs> in this dance, that's just magnetic and sexy and for lack of a better term. So it's so exciting and so interesting and so unique. Uh, and it's directed of course, by Emerald Fennel, who is just uh, a genius. She's just an incredible director uh, she has a vision. Uh, she's willing to go places that a lot of other directors are unwilling to go. Uh, she takes big swings, big risks in her, you know, like pr uh, uh, promising young woman. This like is a huge swing throughout uh, that. You know, she's risking everything, especially with that ending and that she makes it work is just it's it's mind blowing that that, that actually pays off. Uh, and here she's doing it again where she's uh you know, creating this story that's this kind of part talented Mr. Ripley and <laughs> part, uh, I don't know, uh, Pasolini a little bit. <laughs> 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 there, um, 
there's certainly nobody eating shit in this movie, but I can see the elements that are paying tribute to you know that type of that type of cinema, and I really, I really dug that a lot. Uh, it's really just incredibly exciting, uh, and and the movie just gets better the more time you sit with it. Yeah, and I think that their performances, even kind of the throwaway performances in this movie, are so good. Like Carrie Mulligan. Mm-hmm. She just plays this like absolutely daffy character, and I don't. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's she. You know, she goes off, and then there's just a throwaway line about her later. You're just like, holy shit, they did that. Mm-hmm. It's just, just she's like Ari Aster, in that I I love everything she does. Yeah, I mean, that is a very good comparison. A very, uh, yeah, a very good comparison. Aria, she is, uh, yeah, she's in that league. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, uh, let's wrap it up here. Anything else you want to mention? Uh, I'm going to post the Black Christmas pieces that I have left because I know that a couple people have expressed some interest in them. So uh, I'll post those on our page with a link. Uh, I'm not, when I when I say they're limited, once these are gone, if I do, if I do them again, they're going to be a lot different. So get them while you can, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's all I've got. All right. And uh, like uh, we're calling our shot a year from now, uh, you'll be getting our, uh, our commentary episode on black Christmas, but our Patreon uh, supporters will get it uh, well before that. So whenever Jeff and I decide to get together and record it uh, is when our <laughs> Patreon subscribers will get it. So Patreon people, you don't have to wait, but if you're going, uh, you're not going to have to wait a year uh, at the very least. Whereas everybody else next Christmas is when you get the black Christmas uh, episode. Yeah. So join the Patreon. That's right. Be on the Patreon. That's the only way to get our commentary tracks, uh, uh, until they're actually released, which, uh, generally speaking is about a year. Yep. Uh, we need to do Friday the 13th part three next, right, Jeff? We do. All right. We'll get to that one. Uh, and of course we'll have to wait to another Friday the 13th before that'll be released. Unless of course you're on Patreon, patreon.com. And I hate critics, uh, Bob Zarrell, uh, look up Bob on Patreon. That's the fastest way to find, uh, the I hate critics podcast on Patreon. All right, Jeff, thank you. Thanks a lot.